0: Billy Allsbrooks, Marcus Taylor, Dr. Jessica Houston, Walter Bond, and more. If you're ready to take control, level up, or just crush your day, then Motivation Daily Podcast is your secret weapon. Search for the Motivation Daily Podcast and follow wherever you listen to amazing podcasts. Dr. Ian McGilchrist, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining me.
1: Oh, it's a pleasure, song.
0: Dude, I am really excited by your work. I I'm obsessed with the brain. So in the early days of my career of transitioning from feeling completely lost and hopeless in my life to realizing that just because I was uh, underperforming that day in my early 20s did not mean that that had to be forever the thing. What really gave me hope was learning about the brain and brain plasticity um, specifically. And that work led me to V.S. Ramachandran, who I've actually had on the show and am mm. just shaped by his work in ways that I, I can't convey. Mm. And now encountering your ideas, which really take the form and function of the brain. And I don't know if you would say make predictions as much as explain the world, but for somebody like me, who's so far behind you, uh, in terms of research, it it has this predictive quality of you know, my own thoughts and feelings, but also societal movements. And in the book, The Master and His Emissary and your new book, The Matter with Things, uh, you seem to really take the form and function of the brain and spell out some of the pathology that we're all living through. And I find that idea really interesting. And I want to start with split brain patients, which I think will help us understand the difference between the right hemisphere and the left hemisphere and the massive confusion that people have by oversimplifying the idea of what the left and the right, uh, brains, as people call it do. So first, if you don't mind just defining what a split brain patient is, and then the idea of being able to interrogate one hemisphere and then the other and the differences that we see.
1: Yes, yeah, sure. Well, the split brain procedure, uh, or callosotomy, uh, callisotomy as it's called, um, was a technique devised in the 60s in Caltech uh, to apply to patients whose lives were effectively unlivable because of epilepsy, severe epilepsy. And one of the ways it was posited that you might be able to make life more livable was to stop a seizure spreading right across the brain. If you cut the divide between the two halves of the brain, you might be able to do that. For those who are not familiar with looking at brains, I should point out that your brain is deeply divided down the middle well, like a walnut. <laughs> and uh, there's only a, a, a commissure at the bottom, the corpus callosum, that connects the two part. Well, there are a couple of other small commissures, but effectively that's it. Um, and so the the brain works well as a whole, but it's also quite clear that the two parts need to be distinct as well as working together. Anyway, this uh, procedure gave the opportunity to enterprising psychologists to find out a little bit more about the differences between the right and left hemispheres. And one of the Really fast, solid- before
0: you go into that, one thing, one thing that I want to understand is the corpus callosum is passing what in the case of a seizure? Electrical impulses? Like what, what is going on that,
2: that
1: is passed? Exactly that electrical impulses, a sort of electrical storm, um, instead of the the, the properly um, massively complex coming and going of stimuli that are correctly following some kind of uh, uh, direction, you're just getting a massive storm of electricity, it's like, you know, blast the system. And so people, you know, in in the worst cases lose consciousness completely. Um, and sometimes people were having these seizures more often than they were not, actually. So you can imagine their lives were simply not livable. So it was a brave experiment. And um, do
0: do seizures start on one side more frequently than the other? Like, is this a, it starts in the right hemisphere and goes left or? They can start
1: from, they usually, but not always do start from a focus. And that focus can be in either left or right hemisphere. And it it may be something that is just an abnormality that's there from birth in the way the brain was formed, or it may be the result of some other uh, insult to the brain, as we say, that has caused a problem in an area, and it begins to act in a a strange way, giving off these rhythmical discharges. Um, And so the point of the split-brain procedure... And is the problem that when you send
0: out Sorry, is the problem when you send out the electrical impulse, the reason the next one catches on fire is it has to do something with that impulse? Or is the impulse saying you
1: should specifically be firing? <laughs> well, if you if you can imagine that normally the connections between neurons are very cleverly gated. I, I, this was something that fascinated me when I started learning uh, in medical school because, the brain takes a lot of trouble to be able to communicate very fast. So some nerve fibers are coated in myelin, which is the white sheath, which makes it the white matter in the brain. And most of the long tracks that are really connecting things uh, are fast transmission. And yet, you know, while it takes next to no time for that to go from one end of a neuron to the other, then there is this clunky process where there's a gap called the synapse between the nerve and the next nerve. And when the impulse arrives at the end of the nerve, it triggers the release of a neurotransmitter, which then has to pass across the gap, triggering something on the end of the other (laughs) neuron and and, uh, starting to send another signal. And I used to think, well, this is very odd. I mean, the brain's trying to do stuff quickly and it's actually managed to do that down and there but it's got this clunky business of um gating uh, either it will or it won't and it can be blocked or it can be enhanced or it can be partially transmitted or, or wholly transmitted so you've got some sort of control all the time at all these billions of uh synapses trillions of synapses so uh, the answer is that when when a nerve gets a stimulus from another nerve, it will respond appropriately, but not under these circumstances, because you've just got masses of nerve fibres all altogether being overwhelmingly excited. And so you get inappropriate excitation. So... Um, I mean, by the way, uh, very, very little of my research is based on uh, what we learned from split brain patients, although it is very interesting because you can just find out a lot yeah, of the reason. The reason that I'm starting
0: here. J- just to explain the reason that I'm starting with split brain patients is I don't think most people understand the the real nuance of what you talk about in your book and the way you lay it out. And will okay. understand we'll be coming into this interview with a deep understanding of of okay. what the hemispheres do, why they are separated, what the purpose of the corpus callosum is, what we learn by snipping it. And, you know, getting into the story of all this to really make your work um, accessible yes. to a broad audience, I think That's- is is when we get into interrogating the yes. left hemisphere and the right hemisphere and like the, the pathology that have it is so weird and so fascinating. I think it will immediately open a gate to people to say, your brain works. Some kind of way, like it has a form and a function that you take for granted. You don't realize that you're misinterpreting the world. And this is like my sort of core life thesis is people mistake emotion for objective truth. And as you begin to understand the brain, you begin to realize how that comes to pass. And so forgive me, because I know for you, this is like 101 or even (laughs) pre-101, but I think it'll help.
1: we, We can we can come on to your last um, supposition later because it's a very interesting one. Uh, But something that may not strike people as very significant, but is, and I'd like to say at this stage, is that everything that exists, not just in the brain, but in physics, in the world at large, in nature, depends on a combination of Division and union. That just to be wholly unified is not good. Just to be wholly divided and atomistic is not good. There needs to be the synthesis of union with division. And I sometimes put it like this it's not that it should be either or. And it's not that it has to be both and. We need both either or and both and. Now that might seem a long way from what we were just talking about, but it isn't. Because One of the basic misunderstandings is that, as it were, these brains are either at war with one another or are actually cooperating to do the same thing. They're not doing either of those things. They do compete and they do collaborate. Actually, this is just like the rest of nature. Although we've been sold this story that nature is red in tooth and claw and it's all about competition and the rest of it, most of the history of the evolution of life, is to do with collaboration, which includes at times competition. And so you see competition, but you also see staggering cooperation. And the cooperation and the competition together make what I would call collaboration. Now, the the two hemispheres of the brain collaborate. And in order to do so, they have to be different, but able to talk to one another. It's no good having a team in which they both do the same thing because then you've suddenly lost the point. And it's no good having one where they just both go off on their own. So when they started cutting the corpus callosum, what on earth is going to happen to these people? (laughs) And the, the, the interesting answer is that very much less than had been anticipated. In other words, people were surprisingly normal. And that's partly because there are lots of other ways in which the brain, certainly by the time you're at the age when you would have had this procedure, you'd be a young adult probably. At that stage, both sides of the brain have been stocked with information from the other part as well. But in the immediate aftermath of the operation, there were some famously odd instances, like somebody um, picking up a book with one hand and the other one closing, taking away and putting it down. Or a woman going to a cupboard to get a dress out and reaching with her right hand and her left hand coming over, taking the dress and putting it back on the hook. So clearly there were two different kind of views of, of life going on here. And one of the more robust uh, differences actually is can be put in this way, that it's like two different approaches to the world, in a way rather like two different persons, two different personalities. So that one character prefers this kind of thing, the other character prefers another. But what it is not is what was often said at the time, which was that the left hemisphere seemed to be rational and a bit cold, uh, but at least it was reliable, a bit like a boring accountant. And the right hemisphere was way off its head somewhere, um, uh, creating wonderful Pictures but really needing anchoring down because it was a bit pink and fluffy and didn't know how to get on with the business Now that is just completely untrue and even a slightly more sophisticated Idea of that which lingered for a long time which was that like maths and Reasoning go on in the left hemisphere and pictures and emotions go on in the right hemisphere These are also completely wrong. Okay, because both hemispheres do everything in some way but it's all about that in some way. It's the how, not the what. So they, they do the what of the same things, but they do the how of them completely differently. Now, why is that? Well, I don't know any better explanation than the one I put forward in that book, um, which is that every animal, every organism that we know of has to do two competing things to stay alive. It has to eat and it has not to be eaten. And actually that's more difficult than it sounds because in order to utilize the environment, manipulate it for your own good, like get something to eat, pick up a twig to build a nest or uh, you know whatever it might be, you need to pay a certain kind of already committed attention to some very precise detail, highly focused but very narrow beam attention. If that's the only attention you pay, then you quickly end up being someone else's lunch uh, instead of getting your own because all around you there are other things going on. Some of them, as we say, as I have said, competitive, so a predator, but some of them, um, you know, uh, collaborative, like this is my mate, I need to keep an eye on her, make sure she gets some food too, my little ones, whatever it is. So however you look at it, You have to have these two different ways of being in the world at once. And this is what the hemispheres make possible for us. Because attention is much more significant than it sounds. It it took me a while.
2: You call attention a moral act. Yes, I do. And that's
1: because
0: i'd be curious to to understand does that tie into this more mechanistic stay alive thing or or is that going to um sort of prematurely for where i want to take the conversation open us up into
2: uh, well, we a much get,
0: broader place we we can go
1: there but but we if you want to talk about the nitty gritty side first briefly then uh, yeah i think yeah <laughs> um let's stay nitty gritty for a second okay well i think the point there is that we Attention is, as I say, something that sounds like one of those uh, cognitive functions that people talk about. A cognitive function. I love it. It's basically like a not very efficient procedure that a computer would do better. But a computer can't attend at all. Attending, it can do all sorts of things. It can't conceivably attend. Because what attending means is a way of disposing your consciousness towards the world it's the how of your consciousness now if you are in a certain frame of mind or you have a certain purpose in mind or you're just a certain kind of person or it's just one of those days you may have uh, a very driven manipulative attitude in which you see things as stuff to get to grab quickly hoard use you know whatever but you may on another day actually think this is madness. This is no kind of a wisdom. Actually, there's a, a whole vibrant living world there that I need to be connected to and listening to. And it is speaking to me and I need to speak to it. So I'm going right from the most nitty gritty to the, <laughs> the, the the most uh, philosophical, if you like. But what I basically realized quite early is that how you attend to something changes what there is in the world, at least The the, the weaker claim is what there is for you in the world. We may get, but we might have a lot of time to get there to the point where I can explain that I believe that it doesn't just make a difference to what I find in the world, but to what actually exists as well.
0: Mm. to a degree. Yeah, that that's big. And and we will certainly uh, get to that. But one thing before we go off the corpus callosum and splitting it, I'd like to ask, because this if this is true, this feels extraordinarily revelatory to me, which is that there was a split brain patient and one half of the brain that you even said, I, I heard you say that um, you can think of the different hemispheres almost as having their own personalities. And in the split-brain patient that I'm thinking of, uh, one half was devoutly religious and the other half was devoutly uh, atheist I- in the same brain.
1: That, no, that's one, that's one I'd Ram- like to know, can you verify? Yeah, that's one of Rama's patients. Um, and, and Rama is one of the the, the the great neurologists, I think, because unlike so many, he's able to see beyond the wiring diagram. You need to know that. but he's not shy of seeing that this actually has something to do with living human beings. Now, I can tell you an awful lot of neuroscientists don't think that. And so, I mean, I came to science uh, from a background in the humanities, philosophy, literature, you know, art. And I then studied medicine, went into the neurology-psychiatry interface. And so I approached medicine right away as about human beings and their lives, not just about mechanisms. But an awful lot of people... Um, we're very good at the technical side. Perhaps I've either never trained with patients or only experimentally, and they kind of see the mechanisms. It's very interesting in the abstract and what you'd see down a microscope or with a particular investigation. But they are very uncomfortable about <laughs> uh, about applying that to real people. You know, Mike Casaniga is a lovely guy, and I respect him greatly. But we interviewed him for a film about my work called The Divided Brain. And he, he's a man who's, you know, mainly lived in, in the world of the lab. And he said, um, you know, he takes all these findings from neurology and then applies them to real living people in the world. And, and I'm not comfortable with that. And I was thinking, oh, my God, <laughs> you said it. Uh, but anyway, um, he then says, the brain's just a machine. Get over it. Well, my 1,600 pages that's just about to come out is devoted to the idea that that is just nowhere near sophisticated enough an approach. But we may get there later. So the trouble is we're dotting around a lot and I don't know where you want me to go quite next. I think 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 going into
0: that is... Let's let's go into that. So why so now that we understand that there are these very profound implications to the way that the brain is split. And I'm going to sort of recap what we just went over and then we'll go into um, why our sort of current under understanding if we're taking a mechanistic look at this is, is wrong. So we've got this brain. It's split in half. Nature did not do that on accident. In fact, if you look back just an obscene amount of time through the evolutionary tree down to like worms and nematodes and all that, they all have split brains that are asymmetrical. So this was something that we happened upon very early. Your thesis on why we ended up there is because the, these, the how of of it all. Uh, The great example you give is that you have to both focus in on something very specific, how I can grab this branch, how I can get this seed, but also more broadly to make sure that I'm not eaten. And so I think that will land for everybody. I think they're going to really understand that. But there are other deep complexities. And as we begin to think about how much information is that the two hemispheres are really working together and you go to great lengths in the emissary and Uh, his the master and his emissary Um, you go into great detail about how what ends up happening is the emissary so the hyper-focused really looking at something specific but in danger of losing track of the whole because of its layer of intentional designed ignorance unfortunately begins to think of itself as the master and like, I I know more. I don't need all this nuance. I don't need all this holistic view. Like, come on. It's, It's a branch. You grab it. It's a seed. You eat it. And because of that, there's a tendency for that to run away with things. And so we have this competition and collaboration between the two that's really finely tuned, very sensitive to perturbation. And we're going to get into what those perturbations are and how they go uh, pathological. But okay. So now we have this grasp of, all right, we have a mind. It's intentionally divided. One side can be religious, the other not. One side can grab the dress, the other can put it away. So we know there's, there's like this inhibitory signal that's often going between the two. So a lot of what's happening in the brain is, ah, I've got it back off. Let me deal with it. And as we begin to take in that richness the complexity we now realize that we have to extend our understanding so now i want to understand because it's very easy to grasp the mechanistic it is very easy to get excited when a neuroscientist or anybody gives you an atomized view of the brain and says the left does this the right does this and yay everybody feels like they understand yeah what's really going on if that atomized view isn't accurate What's really happening, and especially with the we're creating the world as much as the like there is a physical
1: reality. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I use the image of the person or the personality on quite good authority because um, there's a researcher called Ono Kun in Germany who won Germany's most prestigious prize for science, which is basically all about the differences between the two hemispheres. And he he wrote in the Zeit that I was right to see these as effectively two personalities that have different ways of thinking. But when you come to imagine daily life, what is the truth about something quite simple, like where I live, I'm surrounded by mountains. This mountain, is it just a lump of rock? Well, you could say that. Uh, is it um, a beautiful shape that can be drawn? Is it a marvellous example of columnar basalt formation? Uh, is it um, a means of somebody getting wealthy by exploiting it? Is it the home of the gods, as it was to the Picts, uh, who lived under it? Uh, you know, what? What? which is the truth? And the answer is all of these things have a type of truth. And it's no good saying, well, it's just really a lump of rock, because that's just to jump into a certain very subjective point of view. It sounds subjective, but it's really just a very narrow point of view in which everything that you know about that mountain, everything you experience with that mountain has been cut off so that you can say it's just a lump of rock. Now, it's that mentality that I want to get away from and beyond, because it's not sophisticated. It's destroying the world because we misunderstand who we are and what the world in which we live is because of this uh, allegiance to the left hemisphere's take. And you alluded to the story of the master and his emissary. And this is a story where the master is the right hemisphere and the emissary is the left hemisphere. And in that situation, the master knows the big picture and just wants the emissary to go and do a particular job. But exactly because it knows so little, it thinks it knows everything. Now, in most of the cultures, and tries, therefore, to depose the the master. And so you do get this rebellion. And in every culture that I've looked at around the world, from the circumpolar regions through uh, China, India, um, the uh, native uh, peoples of America and all the rest, you find stories which are myths about this antagonism between two beings that are related. They're like brothers or they they have a, a, a relationship, but the one that knows least thinks it knows everything and as a result of that, civilization goes to ruin. In fact, I actually found that there is a phrase in the I Ching that says precisely this, which is wonderful, and also in The Secret of the Golden Flower. So what, what I say about attention is that it changes the world and it changes you. So the kind of attention you pay customarily changes who you become. And, and that has moral implications for you and for the world. So how we attend... And I'm not the only person who said this. I think Simone Weil, who, you know, people probably know, the the French philosopher of the last century, uh, said something very similar to that. Um, But anyway, there we are. So where would you like us to take the story next? (laughs)
0: Once again, guys, head there now, yahoofinance.com. Yeah, so the, I, I want to dwell on this idea of um, co-creation. I don't know if you would use that word, but the idea, so I love the quote and I've heard you say it and I've used it many times, which is that it doesn't matter what you look at, it matters what you see. Mm-hmm. And in that statement implies that you can choose to see something else. And that in all of your work, I would say that there is an underlying idea that we can choose, perhaps through great effort, but that we can choose to either over-index on the left or begin to swing back to the right. So we can either let the world be created by the emissary, which your thesis is basically what we're doing right now, um, or we can swing back to the right and, and take this more holistic view. So one of those ideas is easy er to understand. I think most people are gonna get this idea of holistic versus hyper-specific, the the sum total of a mountain versus the ability to extract ore from it, right? So extracting ore is the left hemisphere, wants to know what's usable, how do I grasp it? The you can have a, a communion with nature by being on the mountain. You can see a vista that leaves you in awe by climbing up the mountain. You can get in better health by scaling the mountain. You could have a picnic on the mountain with someone that you love. All of those things are part of the whole and certainly get lost in the exploitation. Okay, I think people are gonna take yeah. to that yeah. very easily. Um, yes. And I think is 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 amazing language for people to understand some of the cultural difficulties that we're having right now, which we will get to. Uh, But the part that I think is more difficult is that you're very clear to say there is objective reality, but you're also very clear to say, but there is also co-creation going on in the mind and the outside world together, sort of shaping each other and creating this this whole. Help me better understand that.
1: Yeah, Uh, it's a very important point. And it's related to two things I just wanted to gloss when you were talking there that um, one is that we could get carried away with the idea that somehow this uh, beautiful communing with the mountain was a little bit airy-fairy. But I'm not talking about that at all. I'm talking about a really much more sophisticated philosophical understanding of what our environment is. And interestingly, the, the emotional brain is as much the left hemisphere as the right. It specializes in anger, irritability, uh, and uh, doesn't like being crossed. And so it's not a cool customer, and it is less rational than the right hemisphere. Get that. It it certainly helps us reason, but the reasonable conclusions about reality need to be formed by the right hemisphere. In the absence of the right hemisphere, we're really into the territory of delusions, hallucinations, and all the fascinating psychopathology that you were hinting at earlier. And I write a lot about that in this new book. So, yes, there's that. But the other thing is that we shouldn't think of it as an antagonism, because that would be the left hemisphere's way, between the unified picture and the more differentiated divided picture it is a union of the unified picture with the more differentiated divided picture and i see the whole business of the cosmos um you may say well how can you use that phrase but that would take me another talk but i see that there's a drive there's something that drives this cosmos Uh, there's no question of that it's It's doing something. And what it's mainly doing is differentiating. So if you imagine a complete ball of everything the same, it goes out like some amazing flower that is unfolding and showing all these things. It's not destroying that flower. It's not taking it apart. It's unpacking it and unfolding it. So in a phrase that David Bohm, the philosopher and physicist, used, this is an implicit world, and nature is the business of beginning to make it more explicit but nonetheless taking it back into the realm of the implicit in the end so that that's not lost. Can I just say something about that because a very key point is that the implicit is not somehow the explicit that we haven't been clear enough about. The clarity is illusory when we're explicit. It comes from the fact that we've cut away almost all the meaning from something and are just left with one little idea. When we are dealing with with the things that are most profound to us, to love, to uh, feelings for nature, to religion, to the things that move us and make us morally motivated. These things are not easy to put into a simple phrase. And that's why we have the greatness of art. That's why we have poetry and narrative and myth and drama and music and great buildings and, and these express these things in an implicit way. If you say, well, what does it really mean? Then I'm reduced to kind of a handful of platitudes, which don't really help you at all because now you've lost it. You had to be in communion with that thing and not something else that I'm paraphrasing. The easiest way to think of this is it's like humor. You know, you tell a joke, And then somebody says, I don't get the joke. And then you explain it. They go, oh, Uh, because once you've explained a joke, it's completely gone dead. So implicitness is very important. And let me give you a very practical example, which I'm afraid I often use. But there you go. I think it's because it is very helpful. Anyone who has ever played a musical instrument knows this sequence. You think that's a really great piece. I want to play that. So you sort of bond with it. and You try to play it. So far, we're in the realm of the right hemisphere encountering something new, because the left hemisphere deals with things in a way, oh, I see, it's familiar, it goes into that box or category. Whereas when it's still new and unique, the right hemisphere is, is is encountering it. And then some part of you says, yeah, but if I'm going to make any headway with this, I've really got to practice that difficult passage at bar 24 or whatever it is. And I see at this point, we get a return to the tonic, or you know, whatever it might be. Um, But then that helps you be a much better performer. But when you go and perform it, when you go out onto the stage, you must forget all of that. Because if you even think about it for a fraction of a second, the performance will have gone. So That doesn't make it a waste of time, this business of explicitness. It's creative in its own way, but only as an intermediary phase. So that, that I often talk about this progression from right to left and back to right again. What I mean by that is that you begin with the engagement, you then send stuff to the left hemisphere to get unpacked a bit, and then you take that unpacking back into a whole. And if you don't, and at the moment we go from right to left and then stop there, you're left with a heap of meaningless fragments. Because if you're constantly paying piecemeal attention to things because you want them and grasp them and manipulate them, not to understand them, then you end up with a world that is just a heap of atomistic, fragments that seem static and dead whereas with the left hemisphere you see that they're never actually static and they're never actually dead they're living flowing changing and ultimately interconnected but just to round this off it's not that i think we should just go oh all is one that's true up to a point but it's importantly half of the story the other half of the story is all is many and that's why we have this thing in oriental philosophy of the one and the many and as i say you don't become more whole by getting rid of the parts you get more whole by bringing the parts together with the whole and you know so that in Bohm's terms you are making what is implicit explicit and then re-embracing it in the implicit and interestingly there is a 15th century uh Actually, scientist, I mean, he was probably one of the first modern scientists, um, discovered some things that were only proved in the 19th century. But he was also a theologian, and uh, I think one of the great thinkers of all time, called Nicholas of Cusa. He's sometimes called Cusanus, which is his Latin name. But uh, he's worth finding out more about for any listeners. Uh, But he actually had already seen this process that is, in a way, embodied in the brain, is also embodied in physics. And this structure, what's exciting me about my new book is that I use three main pathways to examine what is the world and who are we. One is neurology, one is philosophy, and one is physics. And from these three starting points around, if you imagine... The globe, and they're far, far apart from one another. As you, as we say, drill down, as you get closer and deeper, you find the same pictures and the same patterns coming. They're not, neurology and theology are not at war with one another. They are seeing the same realities, just at slightly different levels and in different ways.
0: Okay, you, you have to take us in deeper. That is so fascinating. So, one, why those three be, please be very specific. Uh, and then two in from the left side of my brain, it really does feel like they are at war. It it feels often super jarring when I find a scientist who is deeply religious and I would love to better
1: understand your take on that. Well, yes. I mean, just an interesting aside on that. Um, A book-length study has been made of all the Nobel Prize winners since 1900, when the prize was instigated. And uh, they're asked about their religious beliefs, amongst other things. And anyone who says that they were ever at any time an agnostic even doesn't count as being religious. Well, when you look at these people over the last 100 years or more, what you find is that those in the humanities... Uh, a good third of them say you know that they they have no no time with religion as you go into science, the harder the science, the more religious people become so biologists it 's something like only seven point six percent or seven point eight percent uh fall into this uh atheistic category um and then when you come to chemistry it 's uh, i think six something. And in physics, it's 4.8 or something like that. So 95.2% of all the really top physicists um, were religious. And and I've looked at their lives and read their stories. There's no question about this. When you get into the realm of physics, you have to be a bit of a dumb not to think that there's possibly something in this idea that the world may be divine. Uh, And uh, there's nothing in science that tells us that it isn't. Science doesn't deal with that kind of thing. There's a chap called Jerry Coyne who got famous for writing a book called Faith Versus Fact. And he starts, I think, on page one by saying, I'm not going to go into epistemology, you know, which was the, the study of how we know anything. I'm just going to say a fact is a fact. And if it's not a fact, then it isn't true. And I sort of feel like saying, you know, "Okay, mate, but... If you're going to really stay clear of what he calls the murky waters of epistemology to that extent, why waste your time writing the book? Because it's, it's only possible to write it if you start to understand what understanding is and where it comes from. So the answer to why those three, there are three things that have always fascinated me, but I can't pretend in any way to be, in any way to be a physicist. Um, what I do, though, is I'm fairly cautious with the physics. Um, I rely on about eight or ten highly respected physicists and what they say. And I have a little group of what I call friendly physicists with whom I exchange ideas before I publish them and say, am I being an idiot here? And uh, usually, thank God, they say, no, you're not. So, but it, and, and I don't base anything on the physics. So it's like I base it more on the philosophy than anything and the neurology and neuropsychology. And then I just show and look, the physics shows just the same picture that we've been looking at. So that's why those three things, because if you want to know about a human being, the brain is a pretty central place to start. You know, there was a neurosurgeon called Wilder Penfield, who's a Canadian neurosurgeon, and he was operating on uh, brains in the 50s. And he was one of the first people to realize that you stimulated the cortex of the brain. Uh, at operation which you can do with the patient conscious because uh, the brain is not has no pain sensors at all you can do anything to the brain and it, you don't it doesn't hurt so at operation he would stimulate different areas of the brain and they would say oh i can hear the voice of my sister saying something or other we're out in the garden when i was 10 or whatever you know so Anyway, what I'm really—that's beside the point. But what I'm really interested in is his remark that the business of neurology is to understand man himself. Now, Schrödinger, you know, famous physicist, um, also said in some uh, lectures given in Cambridge in the 1950s, he began by saying, "No specialized knowledge is of any use unless it contributes in some form to answering the big question." Who are we? And in fact, he says it in Greek uh, because he's quoting Plotinus, the third century Greek philosopher. So there we are. So that's a very good place to start. Philosophy, as it sometimes merges with theology, is a very good other place. But I allow the philosophy to speak before even touching on theology at the end of the book because I think people are very... Um, easily put off by uh, mentioning even certain things, because I'm afraid very sort of simplistic stereotypes have been fed to us that, you know, as I say, the world is a mechanism that only simple people believe there could be anything divine or sacred in it, and so on. So I, I get there by degrees, and the last substantive chapter, which is pretty much book length, is called The Sense of the Sacred. And I explore really whether it is, rational or not to accept that there probably is something that is divine or sacred very much that might be
0: so i think to to really meaningfully have that conversation we're we're gonna have to define what what is divine what is sacred so i'll give you my interpretation of uh spirituality i'm not sure what the right word is going to be uh and that'll be sort of our grounding mechanism so i'm not religious meaning that i don't uh subscribe to any of the the written down traditions but because i am right i agreed and because i am uh at least partially aware of the just massive nature of my ignorance um I have to conclude as I look at how little I understand about the world and that I can't even conceive of, you know, what this would be without time or time being an arrow or, you know, any of those things that there's something I don't understand. And once I recognize there's something I don't understand, then I certainly can't claim to know everything. And so it seems self-evident to me that. The, you use the word cosmos, I'm far more familiar when people say universe, I don't know if you use them uh, interchangeably or not, but that the universe was created by something I can't comprehend. And if that's what we're calling the divine, then I understand it. But if we're talking about a specific religion and a
1: man in the sky, I start to lose you. Well, of course, um, we're not talking about a a man with a beard sitting on a cloud. There's so much to say about what you've just said. Um, the first is that I think it's it, it's an area where it's wise not to think you know everything. Um, William James, the great psychologist, a far greater man, in my opinion, than his brother, the famous no- novelist, um, one of the greatest philosophers and psychologists that ever lived, said, uh, ignorance is a sea and knowledge is a drop in that ocean. And that was you know, 100 years ago, but really the more we learn, the more we understand what we don't know. And what that's what the great physicists are now saying. They've always said that. Basically, the greatest scientists, people like Einstein, didn't pretend that, that we know everything. He said the world would be a lot better if we all recognized there's a great deal to be modest about. We don't really understand anything of the basics here. Um, he didn't want to be branded as religious, but he was also annoyed when he was wheeled on to say, uh, you know, Einstein says there can't be uh, anything that we would call divine. But your thing, we first have to define terms, is it looks a very reasonable uh, thing to say. And of course, it is the way that in the West we've been trained. You know, everything is a problem. We start with a proposition. We then work through certain things. We then conclusion, preferably with an equation, and either God does exist or God doesn't. But the very words exists i mean uh, uh, some people will will love me for saying this and some people will just think i'm i'm you know yeah lost, lost lost the plot but the important thing is that we don't know exactly what god is if we could define it we'd have got it wrong and this is not just me this is what all the great minds of the religious traditions, or the mystical traditions, and indeed in philosophy have said, you know, about this, we cannot know. And that is its defining feature. At least we can't know in the sense of the word savoir in French and wissen in German. I, I need to make this distinction because in most languages other than English, there are two words at least for know. And we only have the one, and it causes so much confusion in philosophy. One is knowing by experience, and the other is knowing the fact that. So I know that Paris is the capital of France. That is Savoie, and in German that's Wissen. But I also know Paris because of the time I once spent there, living there, and getting to understand it. And that is in French, connaître, and in German, canon. And these are quite different ideas. Now, you can come to know God, perhaps, but only by abjuring all your knowledge. <laughs> uh, your, your knowledge in the sense of, you know, reasoning is not going to help you with this, except that you can use reasoning which is a very important thing to be able to do, to show the limits of reason. And that's not at all controversial. Um, Probably one of the greatest mathematicians and philosophers that ever lived, Pascal, said, reason is very feeble indeed if it can't see that there are many things beyond reason. And everything that is beyond reason is not irrational. It may be trans-rational. So, for example, um, my experience of Schubert's C major quintet is not irrational. It's not against reason. It's just that reason can't help with it. It's an experience that is very, very deep and very, very real. And that anybody who opens themselves to it and has enough understanding of that kind of music will experience it. So it's not in any way um, fa- false or irrational. It's transrational. And one of the problems is that we've argued ourselves into a box whereby the bit of our minds that understands least and can express least in words is the one that does all the, all the uh, well, not express least in words, but has the drive to express things in words and therefore expresses the least amount of that reality. Um, so that's, that's where the problem starts. So at the beginning of my chapter, I say, you know, all the traditions that I've looked at, they have some sense of the universe, as you would prefer, as not just chaotic random and meaningless as something orderly we can't necessarily grasp the order but we can sense the order and know there is order and also beautiful and complex and there's just no question about that because you know unless you're a Half-wit. I mean, if you, if, you, if, you, if you look at science, if, you, if you, re, you think philosophically, you can see that even if you don't understand all these processes, it's not just an irrational heap of nothing. There's something going on here that is complex, beautiful, and orderly. And physicists describe this, and philosophers describe this. Now, in most other languages, there is a different term for this. So for in China, Chinese, it's called li. And um, in uh, in other traditions, such as the Hindu tradition, it's called rta. Um, long before Islam, actually, in uh, the, what is now the Islamic world, it was called Allah. Um, and uh, so on. You can go on with these words that describe this thing that has form. Uh, when Heraclitus, one of my favorite philosophers, one of the first Greek philosophers and I don't think there's ever been a greater Greek philosopher, um, used the term logos, not in the way that it got later used to mean a sort of logical thinking, but he says the logos is so deep that the soul cannot encompass it. So he's talking about something that has to be approached in a spirit of a degree of humility, a degree of openness, and, and then see what comes of that. Um, And so I start right away by saying, and in the Western tradition, this is called God. But, oh, dear, what a lot of trouble that little word God causes, (laughs) because it immediately sets up all these ideas that now we've got a word for it. We know what it is. And I don't think it exists. I think it does and It's all in a book. No, 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 no. That was just written by, you know, you get into these stupid disputes. And in a way, both the psychology and the philosophical position. Of hardline atheists and hardline fundamentalists is almost exactly the same. They're Mr. Right, entirely left brain. It's all in a book. I'm right, you're wrong. There's a whole set of rules and procedures that must be followed, you know, and there's no room in here for uncertainty, for the subtle that is, in fact, the realm that this divine, whatever it is, inhabits. And so I always think the argument is not between atheists and believers. It's between the atheists and the fundamentalists on one side and on rational people on the other who mostly say they don't know. But if you ask people, do you believe in God? In this country, because we're we're rather heathen compared with America, something like 11% of people only say they do. But if you ask people, do you think that the scientific materialist account is enough to encompass reality, 90% of them will say no. So it's that kind of thing I'm talking about. And I can't really condense it satisfactorily for the purposes of this, but I did spend a lot of time. It cost me great pains to express it rather carefully in this new book. Because I don't think... You know, some people said, leave that out. You've written about time and space. You've written about... um, purpose and value. You've written about reason and intuition. You've written about science and imagination. Why spoil it all by bringing religion or anything like that smacks of it in at the end? And I thought, how strange a reflection that is on the world in which we live. Most people since time began thought that this was the really key thing. And now we're saying anything but, I don't want to go there. Don't trouble my picture of the world. So, I thought, no, I will create some people who will just go, oh, he's a faith head or something. By the way, I'm not. I mean, I don't go to church or anything like that. I, I, I am enormously interested in the rich spiritual literature of so many traditions around the world. And again, although superficially they seem you can find differences, yes. But effectively what they are trying to get at and what they convey is very much the same thing.
0: Billy Alzbrooks, Marcus Taylor, Dr. Jessica Houston, Walter Bond, and more. If you're ready to take control, level up, or just crush your day, then Motivation Daily Podcast is your secret weapon. Search for the Motivation Daily Podcast and follow wherever you listen to amazing podcasts. Head right now to netsuite.com slash theory. Again, that's netsuite.com slash theory. Get the information you need. Head to netsuite.com slash theory. So I want to ask a question that I know runs the risk of forcing you to put a point on something where the whole point is to not put a point on it, but at some point, it's interesting. You and I both share a passion for Taoism. At one point, I actually considered myself a Taoist. If you had asked, I would say that I am Taoist. I, I think um, I'm a Taoist. And <laughs> that's really interesting. So we'll definitely have to discuss Taoism. So there's a really cool. In fact, I think it's the first line of of the Tao Te Ching, which is the Tao that can be named is not the eternal Tao. and. Right. and it gave me the chills just to say that. So there, that's very interesting, and I love it. And like over enough time, you can sort of crack someone open, in into I would say what you're you're opening them up to is openness itself. But you go to great lengths to explain all of this stuff. Why does it matter? Why does what matter? Why does it matter to include? uh, religion, why the making sure that people take a holistic view, like there you talk about the cosmos having a drive, which I find utterly fascinating and actually hope we get a chance to talk more about that. But as the cosmos has a drive, you have a drive and I would like to understand what Mm -hmm. is driving you, why you want people, why you couldn't, because you might sell more books if you never talked about whatever God is. Right. But you don't care about that. It's somehow important to you. To, uh, to include uh, uh, it. And I'm just curious, what's
1: driving you? No, I, I, I would be giving the wrong impression if I, if I said that I know anything about what God is or um, am a believer in whatever. But it would also be equally wrong, equally wrong to say, I dismiss this or I don't believe it. It's an area where, you see, the thing is, we now think belief is a matter of propositions because Western philosophy for 300 years has gone into this extremely sterile analytic mode, um, which it wasn't prior to that and has become less since with the emergence of phenomenological philosophers and so forth and Wittgenstein and many others. But uh, setting that aside, the word belief, its root is love. It, it's, it's cognate with Belieben in, in German, uh, In Shakespearean English, the word leaf meant my dear, my dear one, my dear lord, my dear whatever was the, one's leaf lord, one's leaf uh, husband, wife, whatever it was, friend. So it's about, and even the word glauben in German, which is the word for to believe, is related to love, lieben. So initially, belief is not about believing six impossible things before breakfast. It's about a a disposition of your mind towards the world. And that's why I think it's so important, because we started from attention. And indeed, one of the primal things about all the religious traditions and all the good practices is about paying attention to the world, stilling your own monkey mind as they they call it you know your own little chatter about it and opening yourself to the possibility of learning something and becoming just a little bit wiser now if we don't do that we're lost and in fact I think it's through being over arrogant over confident that we know everything can fix everything and understand everything first of all Anyone who knows the literature on this knows that people who are like that are not very intelligent. There's something called the Dunning-Kruger effect, which means that effectively the more stupid you are, the cleverer you think you are and vice versa. So um, that, that's a problem. But what I'm trying to say is we, we want to get away from this to an idea of a disposition of ourselves towards the world. Because if we can face these very dire practical problems that we have now the destruction of nature the devastation of the lives of indigenous people all around the world and and uh, dismantling apparently of our own tradition in the worst way what you know what would good come of it if we could carry on living and we'd still be the unhappy spiritually sterile um destructive people that we are because we just repeat history so we need a wake-up we need a spiritual awakening um not in some sort of ghastly um evangelical football arena way. I mean about thinking that there's more to the world than I know. And this is the, the the three really key things are not to lose a sense of wonder or awe. Because so easily you can think that a description of some process Uh, either explains something, or even worse, helps you understand it. Often it doesn't even explain it, never mind, help you understand it. Um, So we need to be able to keep away from this way of reducing our understanding, keeping ourselves open to awe and wonder, keeping ourselves with a little humility about what our intellects can actually do and having compassion for people who disagree with us. Now, in the world I see, all I see is black and white positions, hatred, um, you're one of them. Can't we have an adult conversation? There are degrees of right and wrong here. You know, I would love to live in that world. I would love to live in a world where we don't just see that we rape nature in order to get what we can and then leave a dying world to our children and our grandchildren. And I'm a grandparent. I worry about this stuff. So no, I really think it's very important that that we, we wake up effectively. And that's why I didn't want to cut this chapter out because it, it, it would be like sort of playing um, the whole of some wonderful Bach fugue and then just stopping before the last bar of resolution. You know, it would just be, what? <laughs> so there we are. And I love that. I, I think that that's, that's really insightful, Nobody needs to be frightened of uh, being asked to sign up to any kind of religious proposition at all. I'm not asking anyone to sign up to anything. I'm asking people to open their minds, you know. And, and you know, cosmos, by the way, cosmos is a Greek word which means not only orderly but beautiful. It means the beautiful and the orderly. And it's been reduced now to the word cosmetics. So when people put cosmetics on, they're beautifying themselves. But the word cosmos comes from the idea of a single beautiful whole. And I think that is a more useful image all images are only metaphors all stories are myths including the one that we're all just machines they're all just myths and stories it's which myth and which story are you going to pin your soul to pin your life to and live according to that's what matters and i would say that the picture we've been offered is um intellectually shoddy, I mean the idea that it's just all mechanism, you know no it is not, there's far more there even the most basic science will tell you there's far more there that can be accounted for in this purely mechanical way and the idea that we're just these competitive monkeys who want to kill one another and and take power from one another, this is not true either, this is a terrible thing to tell people because if you believe these things you behave worse, so we know for example the studies done on um, populations of people who believe that um, everything is just pre predestined by physics. You know, if you could know the position of all the atoms in the universe, you could predict everything, including, you know, what I'm saying to you now and the feelings that are going on in, in, in your mind. Um, th- that, that's absolutely insubstantiable. I mean, it might have been a nice myth in the 18th century, but we know. I mean, physics has completely killed that one. But people who believe it, are less moral than people who don't. And I didn't realize until I'd almost finished the book, I'd done a lot of research, some of it's in the Master and His Emissary, on the importance of societal cohesion. It's in the last chapter where I talk about how the effects of belonging in a community of people who are, you know, living together in a give and take sort of way within a sort of compassionate relationship. They, their health of mind and their health of body is staggeringly better than that of people who don't. And the effects are very striking. So the effects are as much as on stopping smoking, um, reducing your blood pressure, going to the gym four times a week. That's just social cohesion. Then I started looking at the literature on the relationship to nature, which I'm sure you know. And this has become a big research area. And time spent in nature, opening oneself to nature, it has a myriad benefits on one's emotional state, a diffusing anger, on making one feel more stable and settled and it induces a sense of purpose in life, a sense of meaning in what is going on. The whole process, in other words, is exactly the one I was describing of opening oneself and attending to something other than you. Which is why, as I say, it's not all made up in here. There is something out there that we need to contact. And anyway, to cut a long story short, I hadn't really thought about the effects of religion on people. And it is staggering because it's stronger it's stronger than the effects of nature, and it's stronger than the effects of societal cohesion. And they are very, very strong. The effects on health and happiness, physical health—whether you're likely to have a heart attack or you know, cancer—things as simple as that. And on the other hand, your your frame of mind, your peace of mind, your anxiety levels, your anger levels—all of these things are affected by it in a very positive way and i had no idea about this and i didn't go looking for it i just thought well i better look that one up and see and it's absolutely extraordinary i include that in this new book just in an appendix because i'm not arguing that people should should think of becoming oh i better become religious then it's like stopping smoking no no you don't get it (laughs) And you shouldn't meditate because it's good for your blood pressure or make you a better stockbroker. The thing is, you do it because it is useless, because it is valuable in itself. It can't be utilized. And we now live in a world in which what can't be utilized is thought of as useless in the negative way. But the Greeks actually thought that everything that we really m- felt was most important in the world was useless. It couldn't be utilized. It was beauty, it was dignity. It It was the encounter with nature. It was leading a moral life. It was these things that we seem to have lost sight of that were the useless things. Uh, and, And the paradox, of course, is that if you don't seek them for their own value, they will bring value to your life. If you seek them because you think it'll bring something to you, it won't do. And most of the structure of what I call the cosmos is paradoxical in this way. I mean, I, the first two chapters of part three of the book are on uh, the coincidence of opposites and on um, the one and the many, which is another kind of paradox. So I start with the idea that paradox is something that is basically what the left hemisphere doesn't understand. because it doesn't compute. And often the reason is that the left hemisphere has seen the world in a very strange way. Let me try and be very... um practically uh, c- uh, concrete about this so in philosophy one of the most well-known and fascinating paradoxes is Achilles and the tortoise and I apologize if if everyone knows what it is I'm just going to describe it very briefly Achilles was famous for being the swiftest runner and he was challenged to a race by a hare uh, by tortoise and the tortoise said, I can I can go where you can never reach me. You you you'll never win the race. And Achilles kind of laughs and says, Okay, okay, I'll do it. But anyway, I'm gonna give you a head start. So he gives him he gives the tortoise, you know, a hundred yards start. And the, the the uh Zeno, who invented the paradox, explains that in fact the tortoise was right. Because Achilles first has to get to where the tortoise starts from but by the time he gets there the tortoise has moved on so now he's got to go to the place where the tortoise has now got to but by the time he gets there the tortoise has moved on and you see where this is going he can never actually catch up with never mind overtake the tortoise. Now we all know that he can actually bypass the tortoise in two or three strides so that kind of thinking is clearly mistaken but we can't see why And what I've done in this book is try and give people an insight into what the world looks like when the left hemisphere deals with it. And one of the first things that it does, and this may not sound that important, but I hope it will do because you're a Taoist, is it stops flow. Flow is not present to the left hemisphere. Flow is appreciable by the right hemisphere. What the left hemisphere substitutes for flow is something like an old cine film. A lot of in themselves absolutely static pictures. And it then looked backwards at something. So I often say the right hemisphere is the world as it presences. The left hemisphere is the world that is represented, literally present Afterwards, when of course it isn't actually present at all. So it's a, it's just an image, it's a, an after image, it's like a, a diagram, it's not the actual experience. And so to understand motion, you have to get out of the left hemisphere state. Bergson, a philosopher I very greatly admire, said, When you move your arm from A to B, it's true that in retrospect you think that it passed through a point halfway in this arc, let's call it X. But it didn't actually go to point T U V W X. So It didn't go to any point at all. It went straight through the movement. And afterwards, the movement is then represented in two dimensions, fossilized, no longer moving, on a chart. And you can go, there is the point. And it's similar to the problem of how do you get from a point to a line? Well, you could have lots and lots of points. No, you can't, because a point has literally no extension at all. If you put a load of them, a million of them, an infinite number of them together, if they've got no extension, you can never reach a line. If you think like a pencil point, you're cheating, because the pencil point has already got some extension. But what you can do is, after you've got the extension of a line, you can look back at it and say, there's point a or B or whatever in it. But that's because you have destroyed extension. The extension's no longer there. Instead, there's a mental map in the left hemisphere, dead, and it can be dissected. So this is why there are your paradoxes. And I look at about 30 So di- one di- thing I, I wanna uh, get into- Sorry.
0: Yeah. What's the way out? How do we shift at a societal level back to a more holistic integrated right-left view? It's a very
1: reasonable question and a very good question and a very difficult question. Um, And you'll probably expect me to say what I'm going to say, which is that, first of all, we have to be careful (laughs) not to be um, submitting ourselves to the desire of the left hemisphere, which is, oh, panic, things are out of control. We need eight bullet points. Yes, eight. And if we can do those eight bullet points, it'll all be fine. But we must enforce them and make sure that by law, nobody departs. No, that is never, ever going to save us. What instead we need, because I can't say this more clearly because it's so important, it's the how that matters, not the what. And that is also true of what you say. It seems to me that we should live in a world where there is virtually nothing that you can't say. It's how you say it. and If you blatantly say it in order to... Cause violence or something, then okay. But if you don't, you know, we need to sort of go back from this world in which everything is micro-controlled and take a few risks. You know, life is risky. From the moment you're born, you're dying. You know, get real. That's the moment none of us gets away from. Um, so I would say we need to think about how we look at the world. And lots of people write about what we might do. And I, I'm not in any way. Um, knocking the value of that. It's, It's essential, but it's only a part of the story because, as I keep saying, if we only do certain things but don't change the way, the how, in which we relate to the world and to one another, and as I would say to the cosmos, it's no good because we won't break out of this. If we survive at all, we won't be able to keep it up for long because we'll just fall back into the same problems. But to me, almost more important is we won't deserve to survive. You know, I have an unpopular vision that actually life is not just about getting pleasure. I love loads of things in life that give me enormous pleasure. My family, my friends, my music, good food, nice wine, my garden, uh, you know, hundreds of things. I'm not some ghastly old Puritan. But I do think, (laughs) I do think that we've lost The idea that there's a bit more to it than that, as Wittgenstein said, you know, I don't know why we were born, but I'm pretty certain it wasn't just to have a good time. Having a good time is not a bad thing. But of course, once again, it's one of those things that tends to come better if you're not focused on it. The more you focus on, I must have a good time, I'm going to be happy, the less easily it comes, because happiness is famously elusive. And famously, people find happiness often by sinking their own aims, their own needs in those of others. So it's a very complex picture. But what I've, I can only do a little bit. I mean, I'm only one person and I've only got a few years left. Um, so the little thing I think I can do while... I've got time. Is what has practically killed me is writing this book because it's a demon has taken me up and said write this book. And to begin with, I thought it was going to be a shorter book. And it said, no, no, you haven't finished yet. No, we're going there, 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 there. And I just have. And all I can say is I've done my best shot at, as it were, taking the reader by the hand and not arguing with the reader, not going, listen. you're irrational if you see it like this or if you look at the brain like this I'm not saying that, what I'm saying is come with me because I think the way we tend to see things now is not the full picture and I want to show you something that's beautiful and what's more I think when I show it to you, you will not be surprised because you will know it somewhere already, you will recognize it a lot of people who've read my book have said to me you know You've changed my life, but it's only because you opened my eyes to something that I knew all my life. But I didn't know how to say it. I had no words for it. And you've given me that confidence. So what what I really want to do is give people a taste of, and not talking down to them, it's, a, it's a, you know, be prepared for some strenuous stuff, but I try to make everything um, so that any you know college level person can read it without any special inside knowledge um so and I try to explain and that's why it you know takes me pains and a long time to write is I try to make things that are really quite difficult to say fairly simple but what I want to offer is that that's my answer to your question what do we need what can we do I, I can only say uh here's my book and at the end I quote from a German poet called Angelus Silesius that says, <laughs> reader, surely this is enough. But if you want more, then you yourself go and you be the book and you be the life. And that's, you know, that's basically my message.
0: That is a phenomenal place to wrap this up. Um, I do want to read a brief quote from you that I think really um, says exactly what you just said uh, in a beautiful way. Here it is. There are four main pathways to the truth, science, reason, intuition, and imagination. Any worldview that tries to get by without paying due respect to all four of these is bound to fail. And with that, Dr. Ian McGilchrist, thank you so much for joining me today. Your work is unbelievable. I'm so grateful that you've taken the time to put all of that into words uh, so that the rest of us can use it as an orienting mechanism. It's truly breathtaking. Thank you so much for joining me today. I thoroughly
1: enjoyed it, of course, and thank you very much for inviting me and giving me a platform.
0: Of course, where can people find you if they want more with you?
1: Um, if they, you Google my name, uh, the first thing that will probably come up is Channel McGilchrist. Um, and even if you don't know the spelling, you'll probably get, get there. That. Um, that's one of the good things about Google. But Channel McGilchrist um, has a large um, open area. You don't have to become a member. If you're interested, there's a lot of other material that members get. But we have a lot of stuff that's there for public browsing and you can learn more about my thinking, my work. You can see little video clips and there's all about the new book, including a few reviews I've already got of it. A quarter of an hour's talk by me trying to explain what the book's about and even a rather nice CGI image where you can look into a book that hasn't yet been made. But (laughs) it's using the typographed pages. So it's actually quite, quite nice. So that's where to go, Uh, channelmcgillchris.com. Thanks. Amazing. All right, guys.
0: I know that you will be blown away by further engagement with his work. And speaking of things that will blow you away, if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care.